We're just going to continue right in the new year in the Gospel of John. So would you get a Bible and open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And as you go there, I want to mention two names to you. Bob Devaney and Tom Osborne. These are names that none of you know, right? In fact, they, you might know those. Some of you might know those names better than you know Jesus. Now, before you go rushing off to the good old days of Husker football, I bring these two men up today, and and all the things that you associate with their names, because one of the things that made them great in Husker Nation is that, and even across the U.S., was that people knew what they were there to do. People knew what they were there as the head coach of the football team, as the director of athletics, what they were there to do. And they not only delivered, but they exceeded expectations. I think. And they were successful in their roles and in their mission. Now we as a church will be thinking about and praying about and seeking this out a good bit this year about our role and mission. But in order to successfully do that, we need to ask about the name above all names, Jesus the Christ. He certainly had a mission. And he had, an, he had an expectation of success from God the Father, His Father, and our Father for those who trust Jesus. But do we know what He was and is there to do? Do we understand what that mission is and how it was to be accomplished? Do we understand Him? If we get this right, it changes everything. Absolutely everything. If we get this wrong, Jesus will let us down every single time. And we will spin our wheels and be blown across fields like husks from corn. Empty and barren. So let's get it right. Let's get him right this morning. So would you stand as we open up God's word, as we read John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm, branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, 
Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You have a seat. Yes, it's a little odd to be doing Palm Sunday passage at the beginning of the year, not on Palm Sunday. But we need understanding. And we're going to unpack this passage today with two keys. The first key is that we need to understand this passage from a sense of irony. Things seem one way to the people in this passage, but they're actually another. And that leads to the second key of how we know that, is verse 16 is the interpretive key of this passage. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is where we are. After Jesus ha- and this is where we are. After Jesus has been glorified. So that's good news because we, by God's grace, can understand the king's mission differently than those who were right in the thick of it at that, this moment. And if we understand who he is, then we'll understand his mission. Therefore, in this text, we must understand Jesus the king. This passage is about the king. And it's, there's going to be more and more king language as we go through the gospel from this point forward. So what is it that we need to understand about Jesus the king and his mission? First, we need to understand he's the king who conquers death. Verse 9, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, that's at Bethany, They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Do you know that in this this section of the Gospel of John, John has mentioned the raising of Lazarus like four to six times. Why does he keep bringing it up? Because people are being drawn to Jesus and Lazarus because Jesus is the king who conquers death. So why would people be drawn to Jesus and Lazarus? Well, one reason is that they want to see the miracle and the miracle worker. As we study this whole passage today, as we maybe as you read it, it's not clear cut who had genuine faith in Jesus or not. We're not to, we're told that people came to see and meet Jesus and from seeing him Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I think that's a good thing and I think we should think that's a good thing. They at least believed Jesus was given, they at least believed Jesus given what was revealed to them. And that's what we should do. We have been, Jesus has been revealed to us and we should believe him based on what has been revealed about him. Some came to Jesus and Lazarus and saw the reverse funeral on demand guy. Oh, this is the guy I, I, should, ha- I should come and have raised so-and-so who died in my house. That's not what Jesus is there for. He is there for a specific mission and purpose. Some of this crowd, however, many, it says, 
came and we're beginning to get a picture that death was not the end of the story. And because it was, it's not the end of the story, that infuriated the chief priests. Because it says they made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Why would the chief priests want Lazarus dead? Lazarus is just a guy in a town nearby. No big deal. Well, a living Lazarus removes their influence and it mocks their doctrine. When the passage says many of the Jews were going away, that means they were going away from the current religious establishment. And they were going away, by implication, from the leaders of that establishment. And for people who have sinfully held power for a long time, loss of influence is like someone stealing their kids. They don't take it lightly. But Lazarus not just removes their influence, he mocks their doctrine. Remember, do you remember what the chief priests were predominantly a, a group of? Sadducees. And they, the group of Sadducees, taught and touted, and they even came up to Jesus and questioned him on it. They touted that there was no such thing as resurrection. That's their doctrine. That's what they believed. And actually, their doctrine sounds a lot like many people today. Many people believe you live, you die, the end. So eat, drink, and be merry, therefore. Or he who dies with the most toys wins. Wins what, they don't say. But here Jesus is conquering death. And now there's a living, eating walking, talking, direct refutation of their beliefs. But instead of believing Jesus, they harden their hearts and commit to killing not only Jesus, but Lazarus as well. So what is it that they should have understood? That Jesus is the king who conquers death. He doesn't come to leave things as they are. He's undoing the curse of sin right before them, and they want to stay in sin. And lest we think that this is just the problem of the chief priests, Scripture declares that none of us seek God on our own. Why? Because we are dead in sin apart from the grace of God. And that's why this is so important. We must understand Jesus is the King, and He's the King who conquers death. Secondly, we must understand that he's the king who brings peace. He conquers death and he brings peace. In verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This crowd is getting bigger and bigger. And they start shouting and they take branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. It sounds like they understand who he is, right? Maybe. Maybe. Do they know that he has come to bring peace, though? That's debatable. And how do we know that from this text? 
Well, this text seemed to indicate that, indicate that they think he's come for war. Now, we may have, on Palm Sunday, kids come with palm branches and waving them around. It's, it's very peaceful. It's very celebratory, right? But some background information is really helpful here. Palm branches, at that time, were symbolic of victorious, triumphant, and superior Israel. The last time leaders had entered the city as triumphant were what Israel considered the good old days of the Maccabees. And if you know anything about the Maccabees, they defeated the Syrians and they rededicated the temple after it was desecrated by the Seleucid emperor Antiochus Epiphanes. And they killed him and drove the, the Seleucids, who were the precursors to the Romans, out of the city. They were about war. So what's going on here when they cry out scripture, when they shout the king of Israel with palm branches is the expectation of nationalism. Because they don't see Jesus as a suffering Messiah. They see Jesus as the political revolutionary king. The one who does have power over death, but they interpret it as one who will come and put to death the Romans who have been oppressing them, and reestablish Israel as the world power chosen nation it was meant to be. And they get him wrong. And many today get Jesus wrong because they think that Jesus is after the exclusive interests of their political nation instead of the world. What does Jesus say? John 18, verse 36, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He's the king who therefore brings peace. So what were they to understand instead of him coming for war? What were they to, and what were we, what are we to understand? Well, Jesus actually offers them a corrective. Instead of shouting at potentially hundreds of thousands of people, he gives them a symbol. He corrects their military and national zeal in verse 14, says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Have you ever wondered that when you read this passage, when you hear this on Palm Sunday? Why a donkey colt? We'll get to one of the reasons shortly, but here in this culture, a donkey was still a noble animal. There are several examples in the Old Testament of leaders of Israel riding donkeys. But as one commentator said, the point is that a king came riding upon a horse when he was intent for war. He came riding upon a donkey when he was bringing peace. They think he's come for war, but he's bringing peace. So let me ask you, is he your peace? Do you think he's come to make war upon you? Or that he's come to extend salvation, peace to you? You see, what these people didn't quite realize, and what we may not realize, is that there's a much bigger war going on. A much bigger war. It wasn't really Rome that needed overthrowing. 
There is a war where we are both the captives and the enemy. Of ourselves, we will not realize that we are enslaved to sin. And of ourselves, we will always think that what we need is for God to take care of the other guy. The enemy that is only out there. Instead of recognizing that God needs to take care of the one who we look at in the mirror in the morning. And that's where we have to come to admission. We can't bring peace to ourselves and God. Sin separates us and it kills us and we are unable to secure peace ourselves. So who can? Jesus can. He's the king who brings peace. Do we believe that's what he came to do for us? The prophecy says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on peace. For peace. We must understand Jesus the King. And we further can know that Jesus is King and understand Him because thirdly, He's the King who fulfills Scripture. Because after He offers this corrective action, John writes, Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Why is it important? You ever wonder that? Why is it important that Jesus fulfills Scripture? I mean, why, why not just be a God who displays power in the present? Why is it important that he fulfills Scripture? Well, first, that's how we know he's the right king. Zechariah 9, from where this verse comes from, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then Zechariah goes on to describe other things that Jesus is going to do. He says, I will cut off the bow, or cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That was written several hundred years before Jesus even showed up. We believe a God who is real, who is alive and who has spoken. And our believing this did not suddenly come when the Holy Spirit came on the church at Pentecost, nor when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. This has been known and believed of God's people from the beginning. So when God, through the prophet Isaiah, or if not... Isaiah 2. But Zechariah said that the Messiah would show up in this humble way. The people were supposed to be looking for it. And in fact, in another gospel, Jesus weeps because they 
weren't looking for it. The problem was is that these people, and we can often get the same temptation, we only look at half the picture. It is true that the king will pour out wrath against sin. It is true that God will bring the king to smash his enemies, including unbelieving Romans, like with a rod of iron that smashes pottery. It is true that the king will destroy rebellious nations and people who have brought harm upon his people. It is true that every knee will bow before the king, whether they are willing or not. But it is also true that the king would be, as Isaiah 53 says, crushed for our iniquities. It is also true that he would pour out his own blood as the blood of the covenant. It is also true that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. It is true that he tells his people to fear not and to rejoice instead because it's your king, the king who is for you who's on the donkey colt of peace. That means he's not coming against Jerusalem. He's coming for them. And he comes for you and for me. And he fulfills Scripture, and that's how we can know that he's the right king. I said, we need to believe what is revealed about Jesus. How do we know what Jesus is like? This, and his church that looks at this and is shaped by this, by the Holy Spirit, will look like him as they go into the world. And secondly, we can know that he's the true king because he fulfills all of it. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Isn't that encouraging? Our first read through the Bible or any given passage, we don't have to get it all. The guys we call the greatest men on the face of the earth, the apostles, didn't get it at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The king fulfills scripture, all of it. And we don't have time this morning to talk about all of it. We didn't spend our lives in eternity talking about how Jesus has fulfilled all of it. But do you remember the story from Numbers where the people of Israel were complaining against God again and how God sent fiery serpents among them as a plague? And do you remember what God's solution was for Moses? He said, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Now that would make no sense. That would be almost idolatry unless Jesus shows up. Because Jesus says in John 3, which we studied a long time ago it seems, that this passage was about himself. But in that passage, and maybe you noticed this, no one fully knew what was going to happen until they looked by faith at the fiery serpent and were healed. They didn't know. They didn't understand what would happen until they walked by faith to it. Or they looked to it. That's exactly what the disciples went through here. 
That's exactly what we must go through. We must see Jesus glorified. And you know what Jesus glorified is? It's Jesus lifted up like the bronze serp- the fiery serpent was, lifted up on the cross as salvation for us, raised to a new body and new life, and ascended on high. When he is glorified, we can then understand that these things have been written about him and done to him. He's the king who fulfills scripture. We must understand Jesus, the king. He conquers death. He brings peace. He fulfills scripture. And finally, he's the king who proclaims gospel. We are a people who have news. And it's not the news of the talking heads. It's the best news in the world. It's not spin, it's not opinion, it's true. Gospel means good news. And we as a church ought to be a gospel-centered church where what we do comes because we believe the gospel and believe it matters for our lives and the lives of those around us. So what is that gospel that the king proclaims? We've been talking about it throughout our time in the Word this morning, but let's look at the last three verses. First, it's the news of the king's deeds. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. And then, in verse 18, it says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Jesus has done something that no one else can or has done. What did he do? He spoke. He called a dead man by name. And he came out, risen from the dead. And we may not think much about this in the 21st century, because we're somewhat removed from this, but this deed is not just about the deed. This is about the promise fulfilled. This is about hope. The gospel is news that our wicked estate that is death forever, has been undone. Not through the death and resurrection of Lazarus, but through the death and resurrection of Christ, to whom Lazarus being raised pointed. The king has done it. Do you believe that? It's the news of the king's deeds, but even more so, secondly, it's news, that it's real, it's news that's really about the king. Let's read this whole thing. Verse 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's ask the questions. Who had the crowd been with? Who had called Lazarus? Who did the crowd go to meet? Who had done this sign? Who was, even his enemies speaking more than they knew, who was the world going after? Him, the king. Our gospel, the gospel that Jesus brings, is God full, not God less. It's not about positive thinking. It's not about self-help. It's not even ultimately about amazing things happening in our lives. It's about God Almighty who of his own free choice 
of mercy, out of his own nature, came down, joining himself to our ranks of humanity and showed the salvation of grace that no other could or would do for sinners. It's news that's really about the king. But it is news that does not stay with the king. Because it's news for the whole world. The crowd continued to bear witness. That means they told the news. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. Now we can potentially legitimately question whether people were simply coming to see something amazing. But we do know this, that they came because they heard. And Romans says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is as the word of Christ, the news which is his gospel, of his life, his death, his resurrection, as that is proclaimed, people come to him. And though the Pharisees saw their stealthy plans put on hold and they spoke in exasperation, we're gaining nothing, we're accomplishing nothing, even though they spoke that way, they spoke the desire that God the Father has for the world, that they would go after the Son, the King. And that's His desire for you and me that we would go after him, that we would follow him. And that's his desire for the world. That's the news for the world. And all we need to do, he says, is believe it. Believe it. Stop trying to do to get right with God. Believe it. Believe his news that he came and has done. Believe it and receive him. We must understand Jesus the King. Going back to Husker Nation here, Tom Osborne once said, I quote, Is success just about winning, acclaim, trophies, wealth, our personal happiness or satisfaction? I have been blessed to experience some of these over the years, and I can answer without batting an eye, no. Accomplishments, applause, awards, and fortunes are rewards that often come as the result of hard work and a determined spirit, but there is something bigger, something better, something that will outlast the winningest season, the plushest corner office, the heftiest bonus, and the loudest cheers. That something can only be found when we look beyond the final score. End quote. What are we, York Evangelical Free Church, here to do? I mean, I'll admit, we have done a little bit of that exploring last year, but not nearly enough. Does everyone here know who we are, know who the king is, and why we are doing what we're doing, and what we're to be doing if we're not doing it? 
Does everybody know that? I would say probably not. But this is a good year because God is still at work. And actually, this year, we get to celebrate something as a church. And I would like to celebrate it by being on mission together. What we get to celebrate is that this church has existed for 30 years. Now, that's not long compared to some churches around here, but it's not nothing. God has sustained this church for 30 years. Tumultuous, some. And I think Tom Osborne agreed with Scripture when he said to look beyond the final score. For us to do what we're supposed to do, to be who we're supposed to be as a church, we must understand Jesus the King. And if we get him right, it changes everything. This is his church, and we don't need to reinvent the wheel to determine who we are and what we're to do. We've been given it in the same book Jesus fulfilled. We simply need to hear him, receive him, and follow him on a donkey's colt to the cross where we too must deny ourselves and take up our crosses. And to walk in the newness of life guaranteed to us by this humble king who conquered death, who brought peace, who fulfilled scripture, and who came to bring gospel. He came to save. We must understand Jesus the King. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask that you would impress upon our hearts what your word has said to us today. Lord, that it would not be blown away like chaff, but that you by your Holy Spirit would plant it deep in our hearts and not only in our individual hearts that is important but us as a church so that we as a church would understand you for who you are that you the king of kings and lord of lords came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey not a war horse that you came to bring something much greater, much, much greater than just comforts of this world. And Lord, we pray for understanding and humility to receive your word as we go throughout this year. Lord, each day is a gift from you. And it's a gift that is given to glorify you because, what you because of what you have already done for us. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would fill us with hope. Thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.